From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, Nurse Practitioner and AANP NP Education Specialist, Michelle McKay, and this is MP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to MP Pulse, AANP's monthly podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm excited to announce that MP Pulse podcast listeners may claim CE credit for this program through May 2024. After you listen to the podcast, simply go to aanp.org forward slash CE Center, register for this activity, enter the code that you hear at the end of the podcast, and complete the post-test and evaluation. On this podcast, we are joined by nurse practitioner April Johnson and Dr. Susan Quisenberry to discuss ankylosing spondylitis. Dr. Quisenberry is a rheumatology nurse practitioner at the Arthritis Care Center, Oklahoma, and has over 13 years of experience in managing patients with rheumatic diseases and works exclusively with patients with arthritis and rheumatic disorders in her clinical practice. She has been a sub-investigator on over 150 rheumatology-focused clinical trials and has published articles in several nursing journals. April Johnson has been in rheumatology since 2016 and currently provides internal medicine and rheumatology services to patients in a rural community. April has served on the board of directors for the Rheumatology Nurse Society for three years as the advocacy co-chair and the diversity and inclusion co-chair. April continues to play a huge role in her rheumatology community and is a member of various rheumatology organizations. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome our experts, Susan and April. Hello, thank you so much for that introduction. I'm Susan Quisenberry. I am a practicing family nurse practitioner with a specialty in rheumatology. I've been practicing rheumatology since 2009 and was fortunate enough to have a board certified rheumatologist work with me one-on-one for a six-month residency. My passion in rheumatology is uh, rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. I'm very excited to discuss this topic today, and I'm going to turn this over to my colleague, April Johnson. Thank you, Susan. Hello, my name is April Johnson. I'm a family nurse practitioner, and I work in Oklahoma City. I graduated from Midwestern State University in 2013 with my nurse practitioner degree specializing in family medicine. I started my career at a federally qualified healthcare center, and from there, I moved into rheumatology, working with several board-certified rheumatologists. I've worked in rheumatology for the past seven years. I love rheumatology. I love learning about all the different rheumatic diseases. I also served as a board director for three years with the Rheumatology Nurses Society, helping them with their continuing education and various projects surrounding rheumatic disease. I am happy to be here today, and I am thrilled to talk to you about a topic that I'm very familiar with and very interesting. And I'm also thrilled to be speaking with this topic, speaking on this topic with someone that I've known for years that has also served as a mentor to me, Dr. Susan Quisenberry. So the title of this podcast today is Ankylosing Spondylitis, Early Recognition and Diagnosis in Primary Care. The learning objectives for this podcast are identify common signs and symptoms of ankylosing spondylitis according to the current available guidelines, recognize the role of the nurse practitioner, in expediting diagnosis and treatment for patients with ankylosing spondylitis, integrate appropriate referral strategies for patients with suspected or confirmed ankylosing spondylitis, and compare the efficacy, safety, and indications for ankylosing spondylitis treatment. 
April, how are you doing today and how is your clinic going? I'm doing great, Susan. My clinic is busy and going back into internal medicine, I'm able to see all different patients if I still continue to work up my rheumatology patients. I ran into a very unique patient that I wanted to share that I thought would be great to kind of get the idea of, of ankylosing spondylitis going. And so I had this 48-year-old female patient that complained of left eye redness with soreness that was intermittent in nature for about a month. And she was also suffering with headaches with this eye pain, but could not relate this eye irritation to any injury, but assumed it was related to her allergies. So she started using allergy eye drops, Claritin and Zyrtec, without any significant relief of her symptoms. And on one occasion, she was given antibiotic drops, which did help some. But she mentioned during her visit with me that her mom was diagnosed with HLA B27 test and that she, there was something called uveitis and the ophthalmologist had referred her to a rheumatologist. So I asked her, does your mom have back pain? And she said, yes, they think that she has something called ankylosing spondylitis. So right away, that was a major clue for me that this this patient could possibly have uveitis. So I began asking her questions about her joints and her back, and she revealed to me that she has this ongoing chronic SI joint or sacroiliac joint pain. And she says that the joint pain is worse with inactivity. So if she sits at her desk for a long period of time, the pain becomes unbearable. But when she gets up and moves around, it gets better. And once she gets past the stiffness, okay, so she gets up from the desk, she's stiff, and then she moves around and it gets better. So she complains that this is, this has been going on for several years now. And then she also mentions that she has some morning stiffness lasting around 45 minutes to an hour. So I decided to examine this patient and I noticed that she had this swelling to her left Achilles tendon. And she explained that this was always had been there as far as she could remember. And she thought it was related to the types of shoes that she was wearing. So I'm examining her other peripheral joints. And she says that she has some swelling to her left wrist at times. And that sometimes it's painful. And then she goes on to say that she was seen by another provider before she came to the clinic to see me and had some lab work done and was checked for rheumatoid arthritis, but everything came back negative. But she did have an elevated SED rate, but nothing was done about it. So I knew right away that this patient needed to be thoroughly screened for ankylosing spondylitis. And I did some additional blood work, which revealed a positive HLA-B27. So I started the patient on meloxicam for her peripheral joint pain and her SI joint pain and ordered some images of her SI joint and we're still waiting on those images, but I am very suspicious that we will see some changes to her SI joint that will confirm our clinical suspicion that she indeed has axial spondyloarthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. And Susan, would you agree that this is a classic presentation that we will see in patients with, that present in the clinic with ankylosing spondylitis? Absolutely. We are seeing such increased prevalence of these types of symptoms over the last couple of decades. The mechanical pain or the pain with the with sitting at the desk that gets worse with an activity increases with when you're sleeping, you get up, they're stiff, can't they they say they can't hardly make it to the bathroom, but with activity things get better. So it's very interesting that what we're seeing of late in, in the last couple of decades is a rising incidence of this type of presentation, not only in males, which we used to think predominantly was this was a male gender disease, but the incidence is rising in females up to, in fact, 50% of those presenting can be female. And with, as with your patient, she was young, she went multiple years without anybody really detecting or considering ankylosing spondylitis in the differential. 
because the symptoms are so vague, if you're not aware of the ankylosing spondylitis criteria or the differential aspects of this disease, it very well could be overlooked for years. Absolutely. So let me go on and, and even talk about how so many of these patients go undiagnosed in primary care. Our main goal as rheumatology providers is to educate primary care providers on what they need to be looking for in patients who come to their clinic with chronic low back pain, pain that has a duration or chronicity over three months and stiff associated stiffness. And that pain typically gets worse and but does actually relieve with some NSAIDs. The problem with this as far as the underdiagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis, is that 80% of most individuals throughout their lifetime will present to their primary care with back pain. Absolutely. And we both know that back pain is one of the number one reasons people go to the doctor. Okay, it's a very common thing in clinic. So speaking of back pain, it's important that we were able to establish a diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis. And so I want to share some things to help you be able to take those complaints of back pain and try to differentiate which one it might be. So when I say differentiate which one, we separate those into inflammatory back pain or mechanical back pain. And so whenever I get a patient that comes into clinic, the first thing I want to know if they complain of back pain, I'm going to look at any risk factors that might suggest or give me that clinical suspicion that they have ankylosing spondylitis. Okay, so we have some genetic and we have some non-genetic risk factors. So the genetic risk factors, we have a particular gene that we test on patients, and I mentioned it in my case study, and that is the HLA-B27, okay? That stands for human leukocyte antigen. It is 85% of the time if a patient has, a, has ankylosing spondylitis, they will have that positive HLA-B27. However, there are a small number of people that will have a positive HLA-B27 but they do not have ankylosing spondylitis, okay? There are some other smaller genes that are associated with ankylosing spondylitis, but the main one that we check on our patients is the HLA-B27, okay? Some other genetic risk factors we want to consider is, again, going back to the case study, family members, okay? So if we have a family member that is positive for HLA-B27, or they have psoriasis, or they already have ankylosing spondylitis, or they may have something called inflammatory bowel disease, okay? And inflammatory bowel disease would be like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Any of those things could give us a clue that there, there may be some genetic risk factors to developing this type of disease. Some of the non-genetic factors that we want to consider is the the gut. Okay. So sometimes we might get an infection in the gut. And actually there's been studies that show that a positive HLA-B27 can actually alter the gut microbiome. And then that, that microbiome that comes, seeps through the intestines and gets into the bloodstream, and then it can actually get into the joints. And so we can see some overlap there, some connection with why a patient can then develop ankylosing spondylitis by having that altered gut microbiota. We also see certain infections may place a patient at risk for developing inflammatory back disease or a spondyloarthropathy. And then sometimes we have these patients that have certain jobs that require a lot of physical that like if they are postal workers and they're doing excessive bending or something like that, they can cause a lot of mechanical stress or strain on the tendons 
And so that can also place them at risk for it turning into an inflammatory process. And then we talked about the gender and previously it was this disease was thought to be more prevalent in men, but now it's but now we're seeing that we have a rise in the equality and it being seen in both men and women. And then finally, one of the non-genetic risk factors that we see that can be actually altered would be our lifestyle. Okay. So smoking is number one. So, you know, if you have a patient that is smoking, that is one of those things that you highly really need to make sure they stop smoking because it just creates so much inflammation in our body and it just kind of exacerbates the disease. A lot of times we will have patients that have, once we find out that they have ankylosing spondylitis or any rheumatic disease, we will check a vitamin D and we will find that it is low. And so chronic low vitamin D, there have been theories that this also leads to rheumatic disease or inflammatory back disease, such as ankylosing spondylitis. So we've spoken about the risk factors. So now we want to go into just identifying the clinical features. And this is the most important part is being able to differentiate between mechanical and inflammatory back pain. If we think about inflammatory back pain, there's several variables that we're going to look at. We look at the age of onset. We look at how rapid the onset of the disease happened. We look at how long it's been there. We look at night pain, or we call it nocturnal back pain. We look at the effect of physical activity or movement, morning stiffness, response to NSAIDs, and the location or the characteristics of pain. So Susan, let's discuss the differences between inflammatory and mechanical. If a patient has inflammatory back pain, what we will typically see is that the age of onset is less than 40. Okay, so you might see a patient between 40 and 45. But what would you see in a patient that has mechanical back pain? That's very good to, co to compare and contrast these. Mechanical back pain, something that is attributed to a wear and tear or an overuse or something of that nature, which can occur at any time. You know, teenagers who are cheerleaders could have chronic back pain, gymnasts, athletes, football players. So it can occur at any age. It's variable, but typically is acute. There's not an insidious onset. It's like one day you don't have back pain, the next day you do. So variable variation in duration also is huge as far as comparing and contrasting these two. The duration can be anywhere between hours to, to days, but typically it's not months. Right. So we've got this mechanical back pain that's happening at any age. And then the rapid of onset just being acute. You know, you twisted your back wrong, you failed, you had an injury, you fell off a horse or something like that. But then, like you mentioned, the inflammatory back pain is insidious. It kind of creeps up on you. And one of the major characteristic differences between the inflammatory and mechanical is that the back pain, we have this nocturnal back pain. And I don't know about you, Susan, but most of the time, my patients that have ankylosing spondylitis, they're asking for something for sleep because at two and three o'clock in the morning, they're not able to go to bed. They've laid on their back long enough. It's become so stiff that they can no longer sleep through the night. So they will find themselves getting up, moving around, going for a walk, going to the gym in the morning, <laughs> early in the morning, just to get it to loosen up again. Exactly. And comparing that to mechanical back pain, you know, with mechanical back pain, it gets worse with activity, which is just the opposite with ankylosing spondylitis. It is worse with inactivity. Activity actually improves the symptoms with ankylosing spondylitis, whereas rest improves the symptoms with mechanical back pain. So those are very, very good points. The morning stiffness that comes with the ankylosing spondylitis is typically greater than 30 minutes, often can be hours or even all day, depending on the severity and the progression of the disease. Whereas with mechanical back pain, it's short-lived. I mean, they're stiff, they walk a couple of steps, they feel better, they're like, okay, they're good to go. And speaking of morning stiffness, something else that we see, a term that we use in rheumatology, 
is recurrent gelling. Okay. So recurrent gelling means that the patient, like if a patient's sitting down, every time they sit down, they gel up or they get stiff again. Okay. So you will find that patients, they come into your exam room and they can't sit. They're standing up, they're pacing because if they sit down or they're wiggling in their chair, they are just agitated and irritated because their back hurts to be still. Okay. So when they sit for periods of time and then they stand up again and they're stiff all over like a 10 minute, that's recurrent gelling. You may not see that as much in mechanical back pain. That's right. And now another thing that goes right along with this is the treatment. A personally treatment for this, for ankylosing spondylitis, is NSAIDs. You'll find that patients actually have a very good response to NSAIDs. Almost life-changing, just as if, just as in that patient that you had presented when we first met today. With mechanical back pain, may or may not help. You know, heat, heat and ice, that kind of thing helps mechanical back pain. But that response to NSAIDs, is key. So to keep that in mind, and then the location and that characteristics of the pain is also significantly different. With mechanical back pain, that can happen anywhere in the spine. And typically, a lot of that is musculoskeletal. When we're looking at the low back pain, that is with inflammatory back pain or ankylosing spondylitis, it typically affects the area around the SI joint, the low back pain, where the ligaments insert into the vertebral bodies. It does not radiate. They, there's, it's a non-radicular type pain, and it does not cause that paresthesia, the numbness, the tingling, or the electrical shooting down the legs, as does some um, like spinal stenosis type, more wear and tear on the spine. Right. Absolutely. So that is it. It is. And I'll tell you, the significance of this disease is tremendous. With this type of pain, ankylosing spondylitis pain, you know, the patients experience reduced mobility. Well, what does re reduced mobility do with these patients? It increases their pain, as we were just talking about. So it impacts their quality of life and acti activities of daily living, their actual mental health disposition. And some, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, patients can actually get very frustrated, irritated, and really confused on this diagnostic journey until they actually get a diagnosis and treatment for this. I mean, upwards of 21% of patients with ankylosing spondylitis report having to leave their vocation, their jobs, mm -hmm. finding something else because they can no longer do this. Like your postal worker, who's having to lift up and bend and all of this, if they are not treated for this, that is going to be very, very difficult for them. Absolutely. They have trouble. Some of them, many of them, in fact, the majority of them, I'm going to say, you know, 74, 75% of them can't even find jobs that they can do. 33% mm -hmm. of them need, need help. Their daily activities, dressing, hygiene, showering, bending over and tying their shoes. And this is, this can be very, very frustrating. The patients can be very, very self-confident conscious about this type of thing. There is a high prevalence because we all know chronic pain and a depression go hand in hand. There's a high prevalence of mental health disorders with patients who have untreated, uncontrolled ankylosing spondylitis. There's a twofold increase in patients for depression. And we can see that. I mean, we see that with chronic pain disorders all over. Do you find in your clinic that you're seeing that your patients have lost days of work you know, loss of productivity, disability, disability. You know, most of these patients will want you. They are, they have already filed for disability or they are taking, I fill out a lot of FMLA paperwork because they cannot their jobs, especially if they're sitting at a desk. I've had to see about getting patients desks that rise so they can stand up and do their work, you know. There's different things, modifications in their area of employment just to be able to be productive. And so it is, it affects so much of their quality of life, things that we don't necessarily, we don't always think about. It's not just back pain. It's more than just back pain. It's mobility too. So no. And we know that a decrease in mobility equals disability. 
So keeping them moving is so important. So April, well, let's talk a little bit about the Spondyloarthritis International Society criteria for ankylosing spondylitis. What are you seeing? So before I would, I want to share that. And I think what we should do is share those features, those spot features, so that when we talk about that criteria, it makes a little bit more sense. So I want to back up a little bit and share how do we determine does this patient have a spondyloarthropathy? Okay, so there are some very key features that need to be present in order for us to give them, to meet that criteria, to give them that diagnosis. And so the number one is that inflammatory back pain, which we already we went over that, describing the differences between inflammatory mechanical back pain. And then arthritis is, enough, is two. And when we say arthritis, what we mean is peripheral arthritis. So like the hands, the shoulders, the knees, the ankles, the elbows, the hips, arthritis in one of these areas, okay? So then the next feature we see is enthesitis, okay? Enthesitis means inflammation of the insertion where the tendon meets the bone, okay? So we have several locations of emphasis. And two of the major areas that we will see is the plantar, fashion, and we see it on the Achilles tendon, okay? So those are two, two very common places where we will see enthesitis. Next, we have uveitis. Uveitis is the inflammation of the uvea in the eye, okay? Or we can see iritis, which is the inflammation of the iris. Those are inflammatory eye diseases that are commonly associated with a spondyloarthropathy. We also see dactylitis. Dactylitis is inflammation of an entire digit on the toes or the fingers, okay? But it'll be one digit. Also known as sausage digit. Sausage digit is what we call it because it really does look like a sausage. And then psoriasis, okay? So we have this inflammation of the skin that causes these itchy, irritable patches. It can be in the scalp, behind the ears, inside the ears. It can be on the legs. It can be on the arms. It can get anywhere on your body. But psoriasis is very highly associated with spondyloarthritic conditions. You know, it's very common that when someone has one autoimmune issue, they're at risk for another. So we talk about overlap of these autoimmune disease disorders. So you had mentioned, you know, the dactylitis, psoriasis, inflammatory back, even that the Crohn's and all of that that goes along with that. So I just wanted to bring that up with these uh, features here. That the patients can't actually have more than one autoimmune issue. Yep, it's true. It's very true. Then we've got that Crohn's and the ulcerative colitis, which is the inflammatory bowel disease that we spoke about earlier. Those conditions can present with arthritis, inflammatory arthritis. And so there, the, there's that overlap. They're like all related to one another. And then like we mentioned in the comparison of the inflammatory back disease and the mechanical back pain, we have good response to NSAIDs. And then we can see a family history of a spondyloarthropathy or SPON. Then we have the HLA-B27 gene that we spoke of. And then we have elevated... CRP or SED rate, elevated SED rate, and we call these acute phase reactants. So these are the features. Yeah. So an, an, another part of the criteria is a back pain. And it has to be over three months of duration. It has to be chronic. And typically the onset is when the patients are under age 45. It tends to be a younger person's disease at initial onset. Sacroiliitis is also present on x-ray or on radiographs, but here, well, in some cases. So here's how this is broken down. So on imaging, you, if you have sacroiliitis on imaging, plus one of those spinal arthropathy features that you just mentioned, or you have a positive HLA-B27 and two of those spinal arthritic 
features, then though those are those criteria help you with the diagnosis of ankylosing or to confirm ankylosing spondylitis. And I'll tell you that when we're looking at sacroiliitis, X-ray is really not radiograph, radiographic X-ray, pelvis X-ray is not really the best X-ray or the best uh, way to look at sacroiliitis. MRI actually does a much better job. What X-ray does show you is if you start to see erosions in the SI joint or you start to see some partial fusion in the inferior portion of the SI joint with full-blown ankylosing spondylitis and it's been long-term and poorly controlled and sometimes even controlled, but with a delayed response, you can actually see fused SI joints in the pelvis. So just a real quick overview a spinal stiffness of 30 minutes or longer, back pain, chronicity of over three months. Patient, typically a typical patient doesn't want to sit for long periods of time, needs to get up and move around, doesn't sleep very well, has to get up in the middle of the night, typically between the two o'clock and four o'clock in the morning time period. And the NSAIDs typically do a wonderful job with that. So what other considerations? I mean, we're talking about limitations in their activities of daily living, their range of motion limitations. Often with the bending, thoracic expansion can over time become minimized and decreased. I think that some of the considerations is that because this disease over time can progress, like we may be able to catch the disease early enough to where the progression has not turned into a severe scarring and fusion of the back. Okay, so we're trying to prevent the person to be completely fused. So recognizing some of these symptoms in a timely manner will help us get the patient to the rheumatology specialist to get those treatments on board. I'm so glad you brought that up. Did you realize that the average diagnostic delay for ankylosing spondylitis is between six and 13 years. Wow. It's true. And it's, and the reason why that is, that is so true because it is very challenging to diagnose. And so there is a term that we use, us rheumatology specialists use, and it's seronegative disease, or we say seronegative arthritis or seronegative spondyloarthritis. That means that when we're looking for, when we work patients up for rheumatic disease, there are no antibodies that are positive. Like a rheumatoid arthritis, we see a positive rheumatoid factor or positive CCP. When we work a patient up for back disease, and then they also present with peripheral joint pain, and we don't see those positive antibodies, we assume there's nothing wrong. That's where we refer back to that criteria. Yes, yes. And so just understanding, being aware that there are other differential diagnoses that we need to consider when a patient presents with back pain is very important. And that's, you know, you make a very valid point. It's not black and white when the patient presents. It's a very vague. It's like putting a puzzle together over a long period of time, one that sits on your table for months. And looking at patients, they present differently. Males present differently than females, which I, I find very, very interesting. It, you know, it's just not a one-size-fits-all as far as a diagnostic approach. I think if we stick to the fact of increased suspicion of ankylosing spondylitis with those particular criteria, back pain greater than three months, stiffness, everything that we talked about, those features, I think we can really start working on getting patients to rheumatology providers more quickly. In fact, the, the recommendation, according to ASAS, is that patients with confirmed or suspected ankylosing spondylitis be referred to rheumatology within three weeks and be evaluated and treated within three working days, like with an NSAID trial or maybe a steroid trial. There are such long waits for rheumatology, and there's rheumatology shortages. There's actually now more rheumatology nurse practitioners in the field than there was even 10 years ago. 
so one of the one of the clues or one of the keys here is to start formulating a network of providers so that you can pick the phone up and say, hey, I have Susie Smith here, who is a 37-year-old female who's had chronic low back pain for 10 years and stiffness and so on and so forth. She did well with NSAIDs. I gave her a little Medro dose pack and she, you know, she just felt like I was her superhero. So I really suspect she has ankylosing spondylitis. Is there any way you could see her anytime soon? I know that for me as a rheumatology provider, I prefer to have a collaborative approach, approach, a collaborative management with peace. They are the hub. Those primary care nurse practitioners are the hub of those, the healthcare for their patients. I started my career at a federally qualified healthcare center, and I worked very closely with the rheumatologists, and that's what actually started the interest in rheumatology, but I would text her and I would call her if I suspected that there was rheumatic disease. And I was so, I felt so good when she told me, you know, April, all your patients that you send have active disease. And I knew that I was picking up on something in those patients and I was able to, I was able to grasp the disease. And that's why I love rheumatology and I've stayed in it for so long. But no, I agree that we have to have that network of providers to help us come up with these diagnoses quicker and to get the patients the treatment that they need. Because if we delay the referrals or we get some delay in those diagnostic workups, then you then it sets the patient up for a higher disease activity, more joint damage, and then obviously lower physical function, which could lead to disability. Right, Susan? So I think with this weight of for rheumatology referrals to for that patient to get into rheumatology, what the nurse practitioner primary care provider can do is to try the patient on a steroid uh, dose pack, a medral dose pack, and give them a little trial and see how they respond. Same thing with NSAIDs. They should have really good response to NSAIDs and they should respond to the steroid dose pack as well. And if they communicate that to the rheumatology office upon referral, that's also very beneficial information for workup on that. Another thing that is really important that can be done in the interim is to talk to the patients about self-efficacy. What things can they do to help with this, with their signs and symptoms to see if they can get some relief. And I'll tell you, April, these patients, they are significantly affected with pain and stiffness. So getting them to do some of these self-efficacy activities might be a little difficult. For instance, working on yoga and exercise and stretching. I know it seems counterintuitive, but it really does keep things moving. They also, if they're smokers and, you know, you had addressed that smoking is an exacerbating factor. I'll tell you another thing with smoking that is really important is smoking will not only exacerbate their disease, but it will inhibit the treatment. So it is so very important. Number one, they've got to stop smoking. Getting them to do that, though, is a, you know, that's a whole nother challenge. But we can't give up on that. We need to be their cheerleaders for smoking cessation. And that's where that psychosocial support, getting them, you know, if they're struggling with depression, learning that they have a new chronic disease, getting them into therapy, helping them if they're in therapy and they're smoking, helping them not only deal, cope with their new diagnosis, but also help them stop smoking. Okay, because that is imperative, the smoking cessation. I can't explain how important it is to get rid of that one thing. It will change so much the course of their treatment and helping with their inflammatory markers and all of that to come under control. But it's tough when you've been smoking for years and years and years. It's tough to stop. So that's why we need that support. We need to make sure that patient has that support to make sure they have the tools that they need to be successful in their chronic disease journey. 
I agree. I can't agree more. Well, let's talk about a little bit about how we treat patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And I know that their treatments are individual to patients based on their comorbidities and based on their risk and based on their past medical histories. But aside from that, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. I have a case study to discuss some about that. I say it's, of course, our first-line treatment. Do you agree? Do you find that that is the patients really respond to NSAID? Yes. And in fact, the patient that I shared about earlier, the meloxicam, she told me that it was a lifesaver. She had not felt that good in a while. So if they respond that way, if it's a significant response to an NSAID, then you know we're dealing with some inflammation here. And of course, that's exactly right. Of course, we have to look at the patient, each patient individually. Are they able to take NSAIDs? Do they have renal disease? Do they have history of DVT? Those kind of things. So treatment is individual to the patient and the presentation. But these are the foundational. So there is not any contraindication that an NSAID trial definitely should should help the patient. And of course, we want to choose the one that is less hard on the stomach. And then, the, and then you know, if they if a patient if they don't do as well as we'd like with NSAIDs, and NSAIDs can actually slow the progression of ankylosing spondylitis. Some studies are showing that. But we would move to the next line of treatment, which would be biologic DMARDs. And DMARDs is disease-modifying anti-rheumatologic drugs. These biologic DMARDs are super-targeted anti-inflammatory medications, and they target specific cytokines. One of them is the TNF, tumor necrosis factor, alpha, IO-17. And then there's a JAK, the JAK pathway as well, genus kinase inhibitors. With these medications, they don't come without risk. We have to really consider the, each individual patient. We need to consider their past medical history, their current history, there are a lot of things we need to look at prior to starting these medications. And not to mention, these medications are super expensive and require insurance preauthorizations. Yes, that is very true. The TNF inhibitors or the, T- the TNF alphas, they are very popular drugs. A lot of us have seen those on commercials. But some of the things that you want to make sure of is that they don't have any underlying diseases that might contraindicate their usage. So before we even go with any sort of biologic, we would first want to make sure that the patient doesn't have any sort of active infections, okay? So we're looking for hepatitis infections and we're looking for tuberculosis infections. So we typically always screen our patients for tuberculosis and then hepatitis. We do hepatitis panels. And then after we've cleared that, then we start looking at, does this patient qualify for a TNF inhibitor? And so if they have a congestive heart failure, that is a no-no, okay? Because these drugs can actually in, induce or cause congestive heart failure, or it can exacerbate it, okay? So if they have congestive heart failure, they will not be a good candidate for this drug, okay? If they have any sort of neuromuscular condition like myasthenia gravis or sclerosis or some of the other neurological diseases, this might not be a good fit for them because, again, just like congestive heart failure, it can either cause these diseases or it can exacerbate it. And then finally, there's risk factors for cancer. Okay, so if we have a significant history of having multiple cancers, especially lymphoma, this is not going to be a good drug or a good choice for you, okay? But we do have other options that we can use to control the disease with other medications, right, Susan? Absolutely. I agree 100%. So it's comorbidity surveillance uh, regarding the risks associated with the treatment is so important on the primary care level. So for patients receiving pharmacological treatment, you're right. We need to be on on target both in the rheumatology clinic as well as on the primary care clinic. When this patient comes in with fever, cough, upper respiratory infection, urinary tract infection, that needs to 
raise a red flag for us because we're treating them with medications that decrease their immune system, which already puts them at great risk for infection. And I'm not just meaning just infection like a UTI. I'm talking there's a risk for serious infection, viral infections, fatal infections, re, like you were talking about, a reactivation of latent TB. So these are things that, that we need to educate our patients on. We need to make sure that we're looking at this in both primary care and rheumatology clinics. Have the patients had infections in the, you know, with this medication? Are we asking them those questions when they come in to see us? Are we making sure that they know what to do if they do get an infection? And what I tell my patients to do is if you have an infection, if you get COVID, if you get the flu, if you have pneumonia, if you develop a cough, if you have a fever, any of those things, I want you to pick the phone up and call me and I'll be happy to tell you what to do, especially if you don't understand if you should hold your medication because they're hesitant to hold their medication. They're doing so well. They were, you know, they're doing so well on our anti-TNFs. But what we do need to do is have them hold those medications until they get through either the antibiotic treatment or they're on the other side of this infection. What we don't want to do is we don't want to end up with a patient that's in the hospital with sepsis. So now I don't find any evidence, any literature on this particular thing to back this up, but I'll tell you that that's what every rheumatology clinic that I know does when patients have and present with infection. And then let's talk about zoster. So herpes zoster, we get stressed just without without any autoimmune disease, we get stressed. You know, any kind of adverse event, pregnancy, anything like that can actually stimulate an activation of a zoster's infection. Now, in patients on autoimmune drugs, this can be really severe. So we want, we want to make sure that our patients are vaccinated, not with the live vaccine. If they're on these medications, these biologic DMARGs, they cannot have any live vaccines. If they do have a live vaccine, they'll have to be off the medication for so long prior to and for a long period of time afterwards. So we do not advocate that. Actually, what we do advocate for is the, that the patients are, their immunizations are up to date prior to starting but not, that doesn't always fall in our lap that way. So we sometimes have to work around that. So what we do there is just to make sure that the patient is aware that, for instance, for methotrexate, if they're on methotrexate for any autoimmune issue, we want them to hold their methotrexate for a flu vaccine for two weeks after they have the flu vaccine. With any of the other biologic DMARDs, we tell them, go ahead and get your flu vaccine. There's no need to hold unless they're on rituximab, which doesn't pertain to this particular podcast. But they don't need to hold those medications. We want them to have a good response, a good auto, a good self-response to the flu or anything like that. Absolutely. And I wanted to revisit also, we talked about those contraindications with alpha TNFs or TNF inhibitors. But I wanted to touch on the interleukin-17s or the IL-17s as well as the JAK inhibitors. There's a couple of things that we also, when we're considering the, these particular drug options, that we want to make sure that the patient doesn't already have or we want to make sure we're looking for these symptoms in primary care that may indicate that there's a reaction to the drug and so when it comes to the IL-17, we, if a patient comes in and they're on this, these types of medications being treated for aglosine spondylitis and they complain of GI issues, lots of GI issues, okay? One thing that can happen with this drug is it can actually cause inflammatory bowel disease, okay? So we need to be aware that this medication can cause these issues and we need to back away or notify the rheumatologist so that we can have some adjustments made to the patient's treatments. I'm very glad that you brought that up. So <laughs> just want to yes. for the audience say that the IL-17 is, a is the name. 
Mm-hmm. And for the JAK inhibitors, one, one example is tofacitinib. Do you mind if I... If no, I, go ahead. Yeah, okay. absolutely. With the, with the IL-17 secukinumab, one of the risk factors for this medication is GI perforation as well. So if the patient has a history of diverticulitis, this is likely not a medication that we're going to put on that patient. Same thing with tofacitinib, that's the JAK inhibitor. And the JAK inhibitors work super fast. They have a very short half-life, but there's risks involved with any of these medications. But particularly with the JAK inhibitor, we have to be very, very careful on who we put this medication on. So let's say, for instance, your case study. If we'd have seen that that female when she was in her 30s and having back pain, likely she was still you know, in her reproductive age. So she may have been on birth control. She may have been pregnant. So pregnancy is always an issue we have to look at. But let's talk about birth control. So this is a young person's disease. If patients have a risk of blood clot, if they're on something that increases their risk of DVT, we do not want to use this medication because it also has carries a risk of DVT. So oral contraception, we're not going to use. If a patient has a history of DVT or pulmonary embolus, we're not going to use. And on top of that, with these JAK inhibitors, there's a black box warning on these that if the patient has one cardiovascular risk factor, it increases our cardiovascular mortality tremendously by 50%. So that is huge. That is a huge burden to think of when you're having these medications. So one cardiovascular risk factor could be hyperlipidemia. It could be diabetes. It could be hypertension. So we have to be very cognizant of this. So for the primary care provider really needs to be looking at medication reconciliations and past medical histories. And I think you and I discussed this last time we talked, April, about how important it is for medication reconciliation for those patients who are being referred to our offices so that we can see exactly what medication they're on and equally as important at past medical history and comorbidities. Absolutely. Because again, so many of these comorbidities can affect the patient. They can actually make the disease worse, but they can actually interact with some of the drugs that we use. And so it all Primary care is so important when we're dealing with rheumatic disease. It all kind of mingles together or meshes together. So we need those blood pressures to be under control. We need those cholesterols to be under control. We need the diabetes. We need, you know, if they've been smoking, we need their COPD to be under control. All those things play a role in how well the patient will respond to treatment. And speaking of treatment and medications, we also want to make sure we're looking at preventative health screenings. So like our cancer screenings, our pap smears, making sure our patients are up to date on their colonoscopies and their mammograms. Because again, some of these medications place us at risk for cancer. The medication ankylosing spondylitis, it affects the spine. So when you have a lot of inflammation in the spine, it has a tendency to cause thinning of the bones or thinning of the spine, okay, which we call that osteoporosis, okay? So we need to include that into our preventative screenings too. We need to make sure that the patient has been screened for osteoporosis so that they are not at risk for any vertebral fractures, okay, or hip fractures. Very, very good point. On that same token, what other things, and I'm thinking one of the things that primary care since they see the patient more often than we do, is they could also look to see, is the patient having more progression? Are they complaining more of their back pain, more stiffness? If they're seeing that, it's not uncommon for patients to be on medications like an anti-TNF for years, and then all of a sudden it just stops working. So that's really important as far as the collaborative management of this patient as well is to pick the phone up and say, hey, you know, I think maybe you should see Susie Smith again because she's complaining more and more of morning stiffness. So the more everybody is on board and is aware of what's going on with the patient, 
including the patient, the better the outcomes. Absolutely. Very good point. So, you know, let's talk about how we evaluate that. How do we evaluate it? What is the disease progressing? How is the, how is the, the patient responding to the treatment? Do you use in your clinic, do you use both the ankylosing disease activity score tool or do you use the BATH ankylosing spondylitis disease activity index? Yes, I use the BAST Die tool. I think every provider, rheumatologist, nurse rheumatology nurse practitioner, or PA, they have they use the one that they are most comfortable with. But the BAST Die is the one that I'm most familiar with. So that one is the one that we use in our clinic for the longest time too. It's been around for a long time. I found some very interesting information about comparison between these two validated measurement tools. Uh-huh. A recent 2022 study investigated disease activity differences in 4,185 men and women with ank- with arthropathies. This includes across the spectrum, including ankylosing spondylitis. And very interestingly, I read that within this study that the BASDI tool, although it's a really good tool, it uh-huh. has some influence because of it being a woman, a female gender. Whereas the ankylosing spondylitis disease activity score does not, it, it's not influenced by gender. So it this study and some other studies that I've read are saying now that the ankylosing spondylitis disease activity score tool is really a better preferred tool. Okay. As of late. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's very interesting. Okay. I thought that I I thought it was very interesting too. And as we know, you know, patients come in, their disease, although we're not saying we cure their disease, we can get them into remission. But even Absolutely. in remission, which means they're, you know, they're functioning like you and I, or to the best of their ability, depending on the progression of their disease, their ankylosing spondylitis is still going to wax and wane. So yes. their disease activity score may be up one time, down another. So we don't necessarily change their treatment based on one measurement. So we look at them over time. Yes, that's a, such an important observation or comment. So many times patients want, if they feel pain for two days, they've been on a drug for two months, they are ready to move. They're ready to move. They don't think that the medication is working, Okay. So again, like Susan mentioned, we expect for the disease to wax and wane. Okay, we will have good times and we will have bad times. But just because we're having those bad times doesn't mean that the, that the medication is not doing its job. Okay, I have patients that have been on particular medications for 15 or 20 years, the same one. And, and I can remember some of them saying, you know, I remember at about a year, I thought this medicine's not working. And right when I said that, it just started working. Okay? And I've been on it ever since. And so we, we have to give the, the medication a chance to do what it needs to do. Exactly. And I usually tell my patients, well, let's give it at least four months before we yeah. try to change the medication. Right. And, mm-hmm. and another thing that we do with evaluating them, and I'm sure you do this as well, is is we ask them routinely, we how they're doing with their activities of daily living. You know, there's a hack score that we use as well. Are they better than they were a month ago? What is their day like? How is their physical and mental functioning? Are they having this days of work? Are they able to continue on with what they're doing? And is there pain control? How is their discomfort? And that's how we're able to measure. We look at those comparisons, um, visit to visit to see, Okay, on this visit, you said you you weren't doing too good, but on this visit, because sometimes a patient forgets, they forget that they were feeling better or they weren't feeling good, but now they are feeling good. So that also gives us an objective measure to show that the medication is working. That, That reminds me of a patient that I see in clinic. Let me tell you a little bit about this gentleman. He is a 63 year old white male. He is a former smoker, has a history of back pain, and stiffness that started in his 20s. He is a physical laborer from that time, from early on, always worked in construction. And he has always attributed his back pain 
to discomfort of his discomfort to his construction work. He used Tylenol and NSAIDs early on, and it helped tremendously, and he just got up and kept on going. Over time, his stiffness worsened. It was mostly worse in the morning, and then he started realizing over time, here are older people that are working on his construction crew who can do more than he can do. And he saw his primary care provider multiple times. He was, you know, he had muscle relaxers, prescription ibuprofen, which he said did help actually, but still more and more he kept having pain. And he was noticing he became more stiff. He was having difficulty looking. He also drove, you know, he said a construction worker with a commercial license. He also had difficulty turning his head and looking over his shoulder. So what he did to compensate for that was he just bought bigger mirrors and mounted them on his truck. He, all this time, had thought that he had just mechanical spine from the just hard, hard work. And of course, that's what we all would think if we don't have this knowledge. His saga continued for years, and he started developing in some peripheral arthropathy. He started developing, as you were talking about earlier, the enthesitis, that pain in his Achilles tendon, and some plantar pain as well. He came in at one point with some red eyes. It was attributed to concrete dust. And and then he was prescribed eye drops. And this was something that happened. And he went 20 some odd years before he saw rheumatology. It wasn't until he came in so frustrated and he told his primary care, I, I don't understand why this isn't getting any better. There's something going on that needs to be done. So at that point, he did have an MRI. And of course, on his MRI, he, he had sacroiliitis. He all, at this point, had already had those bridging syndesmophytes in the vertebral bodies that are so associated to like the bamboo spine that you get or total fusion. And a bamboo spine looks just, I mean, it looks just like bamboo. In fact, I think in this podcast toolkit, there will be x-rays of this particular case study so that you can see what a bamboo spine looks like. He had a totally fused SI joints on both sides. His neck was fused from the, from the C2 down to C7. And when I say fused, I mean his, his range of motion in his neck by the time I saw him was less than 10 degrees. Left, right, up, down, every plane. Wow. His lumbar spine, though, in, in particularly was, you know, he, it was not fused, but he did have those bridging syndesmophytes that looked like they were just trying to reach out to each other. And he had the squaring verte uh, vertebral bodies in the lumbar spine, which is consistent with ankylosing spondylitis. So thinking about him, we put him on anti-TNF and he responded amazingly. I mean, life-saving. Even though he had this very very limited range of motion in his neck. I mean, he was able to move. His demeanor changed. He continued, he continues to this day in his construction business, which now he owns, by the way. And he is just functioning amazingly. It is so important that these patients receive appropriate treatment as early as possible. So we can prevent these types of spinal deformities. Absolutely. And that's it. It's the deformities is what we're trying to prevent. We're trying to keep the quality of life and prevent disabilities. So I have just a few clinical pearls to end up, to end this session with. One of them is to understand what the hallmark of ankylosing spondylitis is, which is that low back pain, that inflammatory type back pain that doesn't radiate out down the legs, that has a chronicity over three months and worsens with rest and improves with activity. As far as the diagnostic criteria go, you can have an increased suspicion for these types of features that the patient presents with. But if you check the patient's thoracic expansion and you see that that thoracic expansion has reduced, you might have a, you may want to put ankylosing spondylitis up there in, the, in your top diagnoses. Are your differentials? You see radiographic evidence of uh, erosions or narrowing of the SI joint, desmond fight formation in the lumbar spine, 
and things of that nature. And then the very last thing I want to say is treatment is so important. Self-efficacy is so important. Patient education is so important. So all of these have tremendous outcomes for the patient's overall health. It's very challenging to work these types of patients up. So don't be discouraged. Follow the guidelines. Use your toolkits. And then, like Susan mentioned before, connect with other rheumatology nurse practitioners or find a rheumatologist in your area that you can bounce questions off of because it is a challenge. Even some rheumatologists have a difficult time diagnosing spondyloarthropathies, okay? So this is a very difficult disease to diagnose and it doesn't always present the way we need it to present at that time. It may take some time for, for things to start to appear. So use your resources, help you help the patients. I've enjoyed talking with you today, Susan. I think we've covered a lot and I hope that anyone that's listened to this has gained some information and knowledge for, for their practice and they're able to utilize these tools and resources to to help diagnose more patients that have ankylosing spondylitis. I agree so much. And I want to thank AANP. And we are thrilled to have been able to present this content. It is so important for a patient's overall health and early recognition and referral. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, April and Susan. It's been a pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Don't forget, you may claim CE for this program through May 2024 by logging into the CE Center at aanp.org forward slash CE Center. Register for this program, enter 1207CE in the code prompt, then complete the post-test and evaluation. Thank you for listening, and as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner.